Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. Well, it's another year of the Peter King Podcast, another regular season. And aren't you just a little bit surprised we got here? Come on, admit it. You're a little surprised that somehow, someway, we made it to week one of season number 101 of pro football in the United States. And I'm not saying I'm shocked, but I am a little bit surprised. What I'm really surprised about is that last Saturday, you know, on the opening weekend of the NFL season, the NFL tested 30 teams, all players, all coaches, all essential staff, approximately 3,600 people tested Saturday between 7 a.m. and noon local time. All 3,600 players passed the test. Zero zero positive tests um, among those 3,600. So, you know, look, I've been a little bit skeptical and dubious about the NFL being able to pull this off. Uh, And we'll see what happens during the course of the year. But I think it is a tremendous accomplishment and achievement for the players and the coaches uh, in the NFL and the people who have organized this and pulled it off, people in the NFL office who you've never heard of before but who've done a terrific job, hats off to them, good job to them. It was a darn interesting week one. I'm going to get to a couple of things there. But first, my guest, it's a single guest this week. I recorded a long conversation with the author of The Dynasty, which is a book about the last 25 years of the New England Patriots. And basically, it's a, it's a tell-all about uh, the greatest sports franchise of the last 20 years. And so I'll have Jeff Benedict did a, a couple of uh, uh, sections with him And I think you're really going to enjoy it. And look, you might hate the Patriots. You might love the Patriots. But you have to acknowledge that uh, through thick and thin, through everything, um, they were a compelling franchise in all of sports, but especially in the National Football League over the first 20 years of this century. And we'll get to Jeff Benedict in a moment. But I wanted just to talk about two things quickly before we get to Jeff Benedict. Number one, 
you know, about what was so interesting to me about week one. And that is that uh, the competition, I thought, was very good. The level of play, relatively speaking, was very good. Um, you know, just to pick a couple of things out, Joe Burrow, without playing a single preseason game, you know, meeting his teammates six weeks earlier, led the Bengals on a late drive and very nearly uh, beat the Los Angeles Chargers in his first game ever in the National Football League. Tremendous hope in Cincinnati. And he wasn't the only guy who you didn't really expect to do great things in week one. And I talked to this guy, Mitchell Trubisky of the Chicago Bears. I was stunned at how well Trubisky played in the fourth quarter when all seemed lost um, for the Chicago Bears, losing at Detroit, uh, big early in the um, early in the fourth quarter but what I found most interesting is that you know and in and in these in these times I think one of the things that we all need and we all love are good stories and sort of inspirational stories and I asked Mitchell Trubisky after he threw three touchdowns in the fourth quarter at Detroit uh, to beat the Lions for the Chicago Bears, certainly with his job on the line, with his future in Chicago on the line. Who knows what happens if he totally stinks it up in the fourth quarter like he did in the first three quarters. But I found it really impressive that on the road, knowing everything that was on the line, that Trubisky is able to go out and play at a high level with all the pressure on him. And so I... I asked him, I talked to him Sunday night, and I said, how do you avoid falling into that, that attitude of, you know, here we go again? Uh, because obviously, if you know anything about football, uh, in the press, with the fans, everything, he's just gotten the crap beat out of him for the last three years since he was picked in the 2017 draft earlier than Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson. So I said, how do you avoid that? And he said to me, you know, you can't go back to that dark place. You can't go back to my stats aren't any good. It's happening again. And I just really found that I don't want to even say inspiration. I thought it was really cool that he has that degree of presence. And again, look, I'm dubious. I think we're all dubious that uh, Trubisky is going to rebound and have a great NFL career. But that's not what this was about on Sunday. What it was about is a guy with all the pressure in the world on his shoulders coming through big time and winning a game the Chicago Bears had absolutely no business winning. So I thought it was cool. They played the games. They felt a little bit, like Jason McCourty told me, like a high school scrimmage. <laughs> and you know, without anybody in the stands and with no excitement, having to get yourself up. But it's something. It happened. The NFL got played for one week anyway. And the way they're doing on testing, you got to be pretty optimistic that they're going to keep going all the way down the road into the playoffs in the winter. But as we all know, it's only been six months since America stopped because of the pandemic. And they've got the NFL has to make it five more months 
to get a full season done. So we just simply do not know what's going to happen. And that's why you're really going to have to stay tuned every week to the Peter King podcast because I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. But first, you're going to hear from a really, really fine author, Jeff Benedict, about his book, The Dynasty. We're going to get into a lot of different topics now. So let's start with Jeff Benedict. So happy to be joined this week on the podcast by Jeff Benedict, who's got a new book out. It's called The Dynasty. I'm going to hold it up for you. You can even see it. See, you could order it here. Come on over here. There it is. Here. There it is. You can order this at bookshop.org or Amazon or Barnes and Noble anywhere. But uh, I'm going to tell you, Jeff reached out to me in the spring uh, and wanted to know if I would uh, uh, be interested in writing a blurb about the book. He sent me uh, some early galleys for it. And the original reporting in this book is so great. It really, really is good. Um, I, I'm going to introduce Jeff here in a moment, but the, ind- the, the, the reporting in it is so interesting, you know, going way back into the life and times of Robert Kraft and, and all that. But more impressive to me because I know what it's like to report on the New England Patriots in this day and age of a jillion reporters covering the, the, the greatest team in team sports in this century. I know what it's like to cover that team. And I know what it's like to try to get something original. It's not easy. But uh, Jeff Benedict is going to be here and talk to us about a few things he was able to unearth. And, and, And so usually I have two guests on the podcast. But this week, I really want to dive deep into some of the things that Jeff Benedict got Uh, on the Patriots, so that not only it will motivate you immediately to go out and buy the book and make Jeff Benedict a rich man, but it will also basically educate you on some of particularly the roots of the New England Patriots and why they became so great uh, under Bill Belichick, Robert Kraft, and, and Tom Brady, obviously. But anyway, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Peter, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So um, I thought that one of the things that I would like to do, and I'm going to do it in a, in a couple of minutes, is I really would like to have you read a little excerpt of this book. It's actually going to be the prologue of the book you're going to read, which has so much to do with what came after it, you know, in the, in the, in the Patriots world back in 2001. But before we do that, just give me an idea. How long does it take a person to write the definitive uh, tome about you know the greatest team in team sports in the last generation? Well, it should have taken longer, meaning I, I, I would have liked to have had more time, Peter. But uh, it, so in a better case scenario, I would say three, three years at least. Uh, I did this in two. Meaning from start to finish. Yeah, actually a little less than two, which is way too fast for my liking. But I really only had 12 months to write. And I had, uh, you know, so I started reporting in July of 2018. 
I started writing uh, in the spring of 2019, and I finished writing in the spring of 2020 this year. So it's uh, and it's the longest book I've ever written. Um, Tiger Woods was the longest. This is longer and it's more hefty. So it was a sprint. There were times, Peter, when I was writing it where I felt like I was going so slow and I was very concerned that I was never going to make the deadline. It wasn't until after I finished. I'm one of those guys. I don't know about you, Peter, but I when I write books, I write down at the end of every day how many words I wrote that day. So I track it for the whole time. At the end of the process, I can go back and look. And when I did that, I that's when I discovered I'd actually written faster than I'd ever written before. But it didn't feel that way when I was doing it. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. And what would you say was the most difficult part of a book where the person who is in such mega control of this franchise, um, Bill Belichick, essentially uh, chooses when and if he will provide access and if he'll provide any help whatsoever. And the biggest star um, in sports in this century, Tom Brady, is a noted even though I have a good relationship with him and able to to get access to him quite often, he notably very, very difficult for people to get with. So knowing the roadblocks that you have, how did you deal with those? <laughs> I, I think one of the uh, advantages that I had, which I didn't recognize as an advantage at the time, I didn't appreciate this until the end, but I didn't know anything... I didn't know any of these guys that I was writing about. I've never covered this team. Uh, I've never covered the Patriots. Uh, I'm not a football writer per se. I'd never even been to a single press conference that the Patriots have hosted in 25 years. In fact, I've never watched a game from the press box. So when I came into it, there's a certain naivete to it that is beneficial. Like, oh, I'll handle it. it just that I, I didn't really think about the, the things you just mentioned wasn't on my mind. What I was thinking about is, <clears throat> what can I bring that's fresh? What's the new lens to look through to tell this huge story 
parts of which have been written about over and over and over again. Nobody wants to read a book where they feel like they know everything they just read. So what I was really stressed out about and focused on, hyper-focused, was finding a lens that would be unique and new. And one of the things that sort of set me on a path, Peter, was I had looked back at Sports Illustrated some years ago had, had put together a list called the 100 Greatest Sports Books of All Time. And I looked at every title on that list. And one of the things that intrigued me was not one of them had anything to do with an owner of a sports team. There were lots of coaches and great players and things like that, but never an owner. And so my starting point was to go to the owner. I mean, that was my sort of entry point was writing a letter to Robert Kraft, who's a total stranger to me, and I'm a total stranger to him. But I wanted to come at this from sort of a top-down approach. So it's top-down, inside-out. That's how I was looking at it. And I wanted to start with the owner because – I, I just assumed that there would be a lot of interesting information there, a lot of ground that hadn't been mined before. So before I even got to Brady and Belichick, I was really thinking about ownership and, and taking it from that tact. What was your experience, if at all, with Bill Belichick during the research of this book? So for the first the first year of this project, Peter, I did a tremendous amount of observation. In other words, I'm not saying I wasn't doing interviews. I was, but I spent a lot of time watching. Uh, I was watching the team from as close up as possible, whether it was on the sidelines at games, on game day, um, in the owner's box, in the locker room after the game. In none of those situations would I ever ask questions. I was always just watching, watching, listening, feeling, Uh, trying to take in everything that I could. At the same time, away from the stadium, I was conducting interviews with people. And eventually, you know, I started to get a sense of who I wanted to interview and who, which characters I really wanted to focus on. That's when I identified, for instance, someone like Drew Bledsoe, who I thought was just a hugely important character in the story of the dynasty. That doesn't seem obvious up front because he's not there for the dynasty years but he's so important to why there is a dynasty and the way he carried himself. So I was, I was basically looking at people that I wanted to really uh, build narrative around. Belichick and Brady from the beginning were so obvious because their roles are so monumental. I, I never had to think much about that, but eventually I got to the point, you know, where I was saying, okay, I want to interview Jonathan Kraft, someone who doesn't generally talk to the media and I thought would be a, a tremendous, another tremendous character of importance in the story. Um, other people that were just involved in building it. And eventually, of course, I did get to Tom and to Bill and um, with the questions that I wanted to ask them. And, uh, you know, in both cases, just sort of putting some questions in front of them in advance uh, for what I wanted to cover. Because from the beginning for me, Peter, this was never a, a gotcha story. I, I was very transparent about where I wanted to go and what I wanted to cover. Um, and, and so with a lot of people that I interviewed, I would give them questions in advance because I wanted them to think about them before they sat down and talked to me uh, so that the answers would be better and, and uh, the interviews would go better. You know, I think that's part of the, I often think, 
as a writer, uh, I, I'll tell you a very quick story. I was just on my training camp trip, and I often think as a writer, it's really, really valuable to have someone who sees things with a new set of eyes. And so I was recently um, in Tampa with Tom Brady there with the Bucks, and I had a young producer slash videographer from NBC named Annie Koblitz with me. And Annie Koblitz just had her camera out during the portion of practice where you could shoot practice as a videographer. And she had her camera out for about 45 minutes and she solely focused on Tom Brady. And at the end of the day, she, she says, man, that, that was really interesting, man. Tom Brady loves football and, and all that. So I just got this idea. This, this 29-year-old woman uh, who obviously knows who Tom Brady is but doesn't know Tom Brady just has this observation. Man, Tom Brady loves football. So I, I asked her, I said, you know, tonight when we finish and, and kind of go back to the hotel, let's meet, you know, sort of in the lobby and bring your stuff and I want to see all of your tape from the day. And um, she captured a moment just because she is, she's curious and she captured a moment that I ended up writing almost, <laughs> I'm not saying my whole column on, right. but she captured a moment of Tom Brady in about a, maybe a 35 second clip, throwing a pass to tight end OJ Howard and OJ Howard doing something wrong in the execution of the pass route. And Brady goes out and he yells, juice, juice, keep your shoulders square, juice. And then he go, starts going like this, you know, meaning, you know, run faster and, and all that. And so obviously I wanted to know what that meant. <clears throat> right. I had already had my time talking to Brady. I wasn't going to get him again, but I got the PR guy to get me OJ Howard and he explained exactly what happened. And he said, Tom's been doing this the whole camp. He's been coaching me every day. And you could see out there that Tom Brady was coaching everybody. Yeah. And it was such an interesting thing. And I guess my point is I'm not positive. I would have focused on that as significantly as I did. If someone who probably has seen 20 training camp practices in her life, you yeah. know, and I've seen 2000, right. you know, right. It, 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 she's seeing Tom Brady, like for the first time, uh, relatively speaking. And she basically says, man, this guy really loves football. So I just said, I want to see what she saw. I think and you, it'll, it allowed make... me to do that. And I think that's one of the things about your book that I really love you are seeing things and seeing people for the first time. The very first time. And it's one of the reasons I, I purposely did not interview people like you and lots of other journalists that, that I know that I could have approached for interviews, which on one hand would have been really interesting for me and illuminating. But on the other hand, it would have changed what I know going in. And I didn't want all of that. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to read your all your stories or read Michael Holly's books or whatever, but it's another thing to have a journalist sort of feeding information into your brain 
that then starts to skew your approach as you go in. I liked going in completely fresh. And, and my Tom Brady story is this, Peter. Um, I'd, I'd never met Tom Brady in my life until the first time I interviewed him for this book. I spent about 20 hours over a two-week period working on my questions for the first interview. And the interview was going to take place in the suite where Tom Brady's family watches him play at Gillette Stadium. So I had asked the Patriots for permission to go into the suite three hours early and just sit alone in there with my questions. And I really wanted to just get my mind completely focused on what I was about to do. And also, I wanted to go through those questions for, for about three hours and, and really sharpen them. And, and I did that. And so by the time Tom walked in and I'm meeting him for the first time, I knew where I wanted to go, like point by point in the time that I had with him. But it was interesting when we got in there because I had heard from some people that kind of what you said, that Tom doesn't say much in interviews. And it's that isn't how it was for me. I, I came away from that interview feeling like it was one of the most forthcoming, honest, um, revealing interviews that I've conducted. And I've done thousands of interviews in my career on all kinds of subjects, um, from science to music to sports. Do you want to know why it was successful? I'm going why? to tell you exactly why. why. Because you were prepared. You did not ask open-ended questions. You were prepared. I'm, I'm sure this is the case because the best interview I ever had with him, by far, by far, one week after the Super Bowl against the Atlanta Falcons where he has the greatest comeback in history, I get 86 minutes with him that I turned into a two-part podcast. Which I loved. Uh, yeah, I mean, I there was a lot in there. Yeah. But what was so interesting in that, Jeff, is that I knew so much, you know, and so much of what I knew came from maybe 45 minutes after the Super Bowl, after they win the game, all the Patriots are available. They don't normally make everybody available. So right. I get Josh McDaniels, the offensive coordinator, to tell me about six or eight important plays in the game right. and, and the reason why he called this and the reason why he did stuff. So I knew stuff that I had in my hip pocket that I could ask Brady specific questions yeah. about, about, about why did you go to Malcolm Mitchell so much? Malcolm Mitchell only played one year in the NFL. Yeah. Why do you go to Chris Hogan so much? Right. I mean, the key guys for him down the stretch of this game were Chris Hogan and Malcolm Mitchell. Yeah. It's, it, it's amazing. But – Knowing why he did those things and having the meat of those of of yeah. the story before you go in there, he was unbelievably good about all of it, and I bet that's the way you were too. I, I had all these things that I'd worked on, like I said, twenty hours composing questions beforehand, and then those three hours before he walked in the room. But and I I'd, I'd gone through so many things that I wanted to specifically home in on with him. And, and very little of it had anything to do with football. Um, these were lots of sort of human interactions, like the, you know, the time that he got stuck in traffic on the way to the snow game against the Raiders in the okay, playoffs. We, you know what? Let, let me you, – okay. you need to talk about this right now because this – nobody knew. This is the coolest story 
about the snow globe game, the Adam Vinatieri kicking the field goal, the Charles Woodson, yeah. uh, you know, strip and uh, that that wasn't a strip, but explain what happened that day on a snowy day in Massachusetts. So uh, I'm always looking for characters that are that you'd never expect to be in a story, and this was a perfect anecdote for that. That day didn't start out snowy in Foxborough. It, it was actually a nice balmy day in New England. It didn't start snowing until just a few hours before the game. At the time, Brady lived very close to the stadium, and he was driving himself to the game in his Jeep. I mean, he's basically a kid from California at this point. He's in what is like his rookie year. It's his second year, but it's first year playing. And, you know, he comes out of the house with his bag and hops in his Jeep almost carefree, and it's going to make the quick jaunt over to the stadium. And he starts driving, and it starts snowing. And, and as he got down close to Route 1 that goes into the stadium, it's a parking lot, and uh, much worse than normal, and the snow is picking up fast. And to make a long story short, he ends up basically blockaded in traffic. There's no way, there's no direction for him to go where it's clear. And he's realizing, I'm never going to make it to the stadium in time for Belichick's three-hour mandatory be there early deadline. Yeah. What to do? And to me, this was great. He he reaches for the phone and calls head of security, a, a guy who used to be a state trooper and is now working security for the Patriots. And he calls him on the phone and says, he tells him, I, I'm stuck. I need help. And this guy basically Frank Mendes. Frank Mendes has the moment of his life. He gets <laughs> to get Tom Brady to the game. And he's like, where are you? And what are you driving? You know, basic cop questions. And Tom tells him where he is, and he says, I'm in my yellow Jeep. And Mendez basically says, I'll take it from here. Within minutes, you know, there's a state trooper coming, snaking his way through, lights on, gets to Tom and basically says, you know, follow me. Tom pulls out, gets behind him, and the traffic is parting as the guy is leading him to the stadium. There's other players that are in that traffic jam. They see Brady's yellow Jeep behind the state trooper. They get in line behind Tom. And pretty soon you've got this, this small parade of cars that are Patriots players being led to the stadium by a trooper. But they're really, they're really following Tom. And, you know, the fans love it because they, they, they figure out who this is and they're honking and yelling. It's like it's a great moment. And to me it was like a, it's a foreshadowing of Tom's leadership. In other words, players were following him before he was the superstar that he became. He had these qualities of it, it's why he's such a great quarterback under pressure. He he's so great with the audible. He can look at situations and when the game isn't presenting the situation you thought you were going to encounter, he has a way to fix it. And this traffic moment in the weather was perfect for that. And he gets there just in the nick of time. And, and to me, it was just like sort of at the end of the Super Bowl against the Rams, where he kills the clock with four seconds to go. And when he does it to set up the Vinatieri kick, he doesn't do it with a lot of energy and stress. He very calmly spikes the ball and almost like a yo-yo, the ball comes back up to his hand. He catches it and then he gently hands it to the official. And, you know, and Robert Kraft's up in the owner's box watching this going, who does that? You know, it's it's almost like he doesn't have a pulse. And and I think that, that that's why I love that traffic scene trying to get to the stadium. It's it's uh, it tells us a lot about the guy who's about to take the controls for 20 years. 
Jeff Benedict, I, I asked you uh, when we were preparing to record this, I said, I really would like to have you read an excerpt from your book. And I, I said, you pick it. You pick something you think is significant that will really give our listeners and your potential readers um, a good view into what you found, what you discovered uh, during the course of this book. And you didn't choose some something deep in this 600-page tome. You chose something very early in it. You chose the prologue. Yeah. So I'm ask I'm going to ask you just to read the prologue of this book. When you finish, we'll take a short break, and then we will come back, and I'll ask you some very specific questions in the second half of our podcast. But uh, describe if you can what you're about to read and then please read it. Peter, for me, and I think for most writers, the two most important decisions you make in terms of designing your narrative is how are you going to start and how are you going to end? And uh, it's not much different than movies and songs. You've got to hit the opening note just right and you got to leave it just right at the end. And this story that I'm about to read, I knew a year before I wrote this that this was going to be my open. I didn't know the ending until I got to the end, but I knew the beginning way before I started writing because the first time I interviewed Drew Bledsoe, this came up. And then I was able to talk to the other principals in this scene. And to me, it was just the perfect way to, to start the dynasty. So this is the prologue. Wearing a surgical mask, a gown, and latex gloves, Dr. David Berger stood over Drew Bledsoe and made a careful incision in his chest. It was the evening of Sunday, September 23, 2001, and high-intensity ceiling lights in a trauma bay at Massachusetts General Hospital illuminated the 37-year-old surgeon's steady hands. Bledsoe, the starting quarterback for the New England Patriots, had an oxygen canola in his nose and IV fluids flowing into his veins to resuscitate him. The 29-year-old had lost over a third of his blood through a partially severed artery that was pulsing into his chest cavity and preventing his left lung from expanding. Berger needed to get the internal bleeding under control or Boston's most famous athlete would die. But first, he had to remove the blood from Bledsoe's chest. Inserting a slim tube in the incision, Berger gingerly snaked it under Bledsoe's skin, over a rib, and into the space between the lung and the chest wall where the blood was pooling. Within moments, blood began flowing from Bledsoe's chest through the tube into a machine equipped with filters that removed clots and other impurities. The machine then retransfused the clean blood back into Bledsoe through a second tube that flowed into one of his veins. As soon as Bledsoe's lungs started working again, Berger turned his attention to the sheared artery. When a patient loses a liter and a half of blood, standard medical protocol calls for surgery to stop the bleeding. But Bledsoe wasn't a standard patient. He was the most talented quarterback in team history and had just signed a 10-year, $103 million contract that made him the highest paid player in the National Football League. Reluctant to operate, Berger talked to Bledsoe and his wife, Mora, together. The injury, he explained, was to Drew's left chest. When a right-handed thrower like Drew brought the ball back, cocked his arm, and then extended it forward, he was rotating around on his left chest, using all of those muscles to generate the torque to throw. I will have to cut at least some of those muscles, Berger told Drew. Then Berger turned to Mora. The procedure could potentially end his football career, he told her. 
Bledsoe was adamant that he didn't want surgery. Berger explained that sometimes an artery will stop bleeding on its own, averting the need for surgery. Under the circumstances, Berger recommended keeping the chest tube in and closely monitoring Bledsoe. If the bleeding didn't stop within a few hours, he'd have no choice but to go in. Two hours earlier, Berger had been at home enjoying a quiet dinner with his family when he received a call from Dr. Tom Gill, a New England Patriots team physician. Berger and Gill were friends. At Gill's urging, the Patriots had started using Berger as a surgical consultant a couple years earlier. Berger had a reputation for being the busiest surgeon at Mass General, where he performed about 800 operations a year. The moment he heard Gill's voice, Berger knew this wasn't a social call. Can you meet Drew over at the MGH emergency room, Gill said in an urgent tone. Berger asked what was going on. Gill said he wasn't sure. Late in the fourth quarter, he explained, Bledsoe had been running with the ball toward the Patriots' sideline when he was blasted by New York Jets linebacker Mo Lewis. The hit was so violent that players along the Patriots' sideline compared the sound of the collision to a car crash. Bledsoe went airborne and his face mask was bent. After lying on the turf for a minute or so, he finally got up and made his way to the bench. He returned to the field on the Patriots' next possession, but coach Bill Belichick replaced him moments later when it became apparent that Bledsoe couldn't remember the plays. When the game ended, he was taken to the locker room to be examined. X-rays were inconclusive, but his vital signs were troubling. High heart rate, faint pulse, shallow breathing. He was complaining of pain in his left chest and beginning to be short of breath. I think he has an internal injury, Gill told Berger, wondering aloud if Bledsoe might have ruptured his spleen. Berger knew that Bledsoe was the linchpin of the Patriots team, the face of the franchise. He's on his way to the hospital, Berger asked. We're putting him in the ambulance now, Gill said. I'll be there. The Patriots' backup quarterback, Tom Brady, used the locker next to Bledsoe's in the team locker room. While changing out of his uniform after the game, Brady watched the medical staff escort Bledsoe from the training room. Brady was 24 and had just begun his second season in the NFL. He'd seen some big hits in college, but nothing like the one Bledsoe had sustained. And the sight of his friend and mentor being placed on a gurney and loaded into the back of an ambulance had him deeply concerned. Brady and Bledsoe were close. Brady often hung out at Bledsoe's home, and Mora frequently cooked him dinner. He felt like he was part of the family. Brady quickly got dressed and drove straight from the stadium to the hospital. It was his first trip to Mass General. Unrecognizable in Boston, he had trouble getting past security at the nurse's station outside the trauma unit. He had to convince the hospital staff that he was Drew Bledsoe's backup. Eventually, he talked his way in and followed signs to the waiting room where he discovered Mora alone and crying. Brady put his arms around her. What's going on? He asked. Wiping her eyes, Mora brought him up to speed. They're deciding whether to go in and repair the arteries, she said. If it doesn't stop bleeding on its own, it could be career ending. Brady couldn't believe what he was hearing. Down the hallway, Robert Kraft huddled with one of the team doctors who were closely monitoring the situation. Kraft wanted to know the prognosis. The doctor was direct. Mo Lewis's hit, he explained, had resulted in an injury unlike anything he'd ever seen in a professional athlete. When Lewis hit Bledsoe, he broke a number of his ribs, despite the fact that Bledsoe was wearing a flak jacket. The jagged edges of the broken ribs tore an artery in Bledsoe's chest, causing internal bleeding. The official medical diagnosis was that Bledsoe suffered a hemothorax, a collection of blood in the space between the chest wall and the lung. Roughly 50% of the blood circulating through Bledsoe's body ultimately leaked into his chest and needed to be drained. He also had a pneumothorax, a collapsed lung. Apparently, one of his broken ribs had poked a hole in it. The doctor told Kraft that Bledsoe could have died. 
Stunned, Kraft had trouble keeping his emotions in check. Bledsoe was like a son to him. Kraft doubted he'd ever play football again. Gathering himself, he briefed Belichick, who had also come straight from the stadium. Belichick had seen his fair share of serious injuries, but Bledsoe's situation was the worst. In that moment, he wasn't thinking about football. He was just hoping Bledsoe would pull through. Determined to stay until Bledsoe was stable enough to have visitors, Kraft and Belichick ducked into a waiting area. It was going to be a long night. At around midnight, nurses told Kraft, Belichick, and Brady that they could see Bledsoe. He slept as they quietly filed into his room and took their places beside his hospital bed. Blood was still flowing from the tube in his chest through the machine and back into one of his veins. He had an IV in his arm. Mora sat beside him, gently stroking his right hand. Kraft, Belichick, and Brady stood shoulder to shoulder over Bledsoe's left side. After a few minutes, Bledsoe opened his eyes. Groggy and disoriented, he first spotted Mora. She smiled and squeezed his hand. Then he turned his head to the left and looked up to see Mr. Kraft, Coach Belichick, and Tommy gazing down at him. Confused and still experiencing the effects of powerful pain medication, Bledsoe wasn't sure what they were doing there. To him, they looked like a vision from another time and place. At that moment, Kraft owned a franchise that had never won a championship. Belichick's overall record with the Patriots was 5-13. and 13. Brady had never started an NFL game. It was unimaginable to think that Bledsoe was staring up at the nucleus of the greatest sports dynasty of the modern era. That is some fabulous reporting. That is some fabulous writing. We're going to be back right after this with Jeff Benedict, author of the new book, The Dynasty. Friggin' great. That just is so good. It's so good. When you read that, you know, look, you're probably not an egotistical person, but you read that, you have to say, man, I nailed that one. <laughs> really? I, what I felt, Peter, was, as I said to you, I knew a year before I started writing that that was going to be the open because not only is it great drama, not only does it put the reader in a room that you never get to go in, it enables them to see things you normally would never get yeah. to see. But it also has all of the principal characters. It has Bledsoe, who to me is like, he's the guy who's sort of holding the torch, who hands it to them. And this is the beginning of the handing off. And then you have the, the three figures, the, the Trinity, uh, standing above his hospital bed. It's It's... When you find a moment like that as a journalist, you really, you know, you got to just go there. And so fortunately for me, everybody who's in that scene um, not only, you know, was willing to answer questions about it, but they all had some memory of it. And uh, it, it just makes for a powerful open, especially the doctor. Okay, we're going to continue now. All right, here we go. Yep. Three, two, one. Back on the Peter King podcast podcast. Uh, we're in the middle of an interview with Jeff Benedict, author of The Dynasty. Uh, it's a book about the life and times of the greatest team of the 21st century, so far anyway, the New England Patriots. Jeff, we just finished, uh, you just finished reading the prologue of your book, and I think a lot of people probably would be a little surprised that Drew Bledsoe 
played such a prominent role in your writing and basically led this book because, you know, the, the three most important figures in the Patriots dynasty, Kraft, Belichick, and Brady, uh, are in that scene, but they're subservient to the main character, <laughs> Drew Bledsoe. Yeah. So how did you find Bledsoe here 19 years later when you approached him about being a part of this project? Well, I got to know Drew, I think, quite well working on this book. I even went to Israel with him for a week. Uh, he and his wife, Mora, we were part of a trip together there, and I spent a lot of time with them there as well. And I, I just have to say that I, I was so impressed with Drew as a human being. I'm not talking yeah. about sports right now. I'm talking about character. And what I saw in him as a husband, as a father, as, as just a man, uh, the more I got to know him and, and, again, being a novice, all I could think about was the grace and the, the way that he handled a situation that I think I, I can't imagine having handled it better and more professionally and more adult-like than he did. New England's really lucky that they, had, that they got Tom Brady but they're also really lucky that they had Drew Bledsoe. I mean, this was a seamless handoff. Sure, there was tension and, and, and frustration and anger and all that in that season. They're human beings. But in the end, when you look at the way that Drew conducted himself and carried himself, I think it's just a, a tribute to the, the kind of man he is, the kind of person he is, and the fact that he epitomizes putting team first. And so, yeah, I did want to build narrative around him and I, I wanted to showcase that because it's easy to forget how big of a role Drew Bledsoe played in the foundation, the formative years of the dynasty. I'm going to ask you three other things about your book that in the time we have left that fascinated me as I look through it. And then as uh, you, when we were talking about topics we wanted to touch on, you also found very interesting, okay? And one of them um, is John Bon Jovi. Um, and, and the reason why I find this interesting, and you'll, you'll explain why I think, is because the one reason that, the biggest reason that Robert Kraft deserves credit for this dynasty happening is because he went against a tidal wave of friends and associates around the NFL who told him in 1999 and very early 2000, you're out of your mind if you're thinking about hiring Bill Belichick. He's a disaster. Did you see what happened in Cleveland? Don't hire Belichick. But there was something about Belichick that Kraft liked. And so you also found out that part of Kraft, part of your research and part of Kraft's research had to do with John Bon Jovi. Tell me that story. So I, uh, Peter, I interviewed a lot of people for this <coughs> book, uh, interviewed a lot of people for this book that whom you would never expect to be in a book about a football team. And, uh, you know, actors, musicians, politicians, bankers, lawyers that get beyond the scope of the traditional team itself. And Bon Jovi was one of those individuals. Uh, and in the course of one of my conversations with him, 
he was telling this, telling me this story, which I then immediately gravitated to, which was it's the last practice before the Super Bowl between the Patriots and the Packers. So this is going to be Bill Parcells' last game as head coach of the Patriots. Uh, at the time, Belichick is an assistant coach under Parcells. He's been there for one year. And uh, at that practice, Bon Jovi is on the field. Now, this is a closed practice. So there's not supposed to be anybody there except the team, no media, no friends and family. And here's Robert Kraft, and he sees Bon Jovi. He certainly knows who that is. And he also knows why he's there because he knows he's friendly with, with Coach Belichick. So he walks up to him and says, tell me about your friend. And Bon Jovi looks at him and goes, you mean Belichick? And he says, yes. And this is what's interesting is Bon Jovi's a real savvy guy, and he, he knows what this is. And so he starts to basically tell him that he's a really great coach. The thing is, Kraft already knows he's a great coach. That's why he goes up to Bon Jovi, because he's been watching him coach for a year. He goes to practice almost every day, and Kraft had noticed how well young players like Lawyer Malloy and Ty Law responded and reacted to this defensive genius. He was a great teacher, a great motivator, a great communicator on the field. He was all the things that Robert Kraft thought would make a terrific head coach. What he doesn't know is what is he like as a man? And so he goes to Bon Jovi because he knows that Bon Jovi is his friend. And so he's not asking him to evaluate him as a coach. He's basically saying, no, tell me about him as a person. And Bon Jovi does that. And he basically gives him a, a ringing endorsement because he has a genuine friendship with him. I like this story for two reasons, Peter. One is it shows the unconventional way that Robert Kraft does his due diligence. I don't think there's any other owner in the NFL who would have sought out a rock star to get an evaluation of a prospective head coach hire. The other thing I like about this story a lot is it shows a side of Belichick that we never see because the way this scene ends is he walks back to the team hotel with Bon Jovi and two other people in the rock and roll industry. And the four of them stop and, you know, drink hurricanes on a curb in new Orleans. And if you didn't know it, you'd think Bill Belichick's just one of the band. And, and I love that, that sort of insight into Belichick before he becomes the man in new England, which will be four years later or three years later. So Bon Jovi, who is a great storyteller in his own right, a great songwriter, I keyed into people like Bon Jovi because they're storytellers. They know how to tell you a story that I could then take and weave into this narrative. Why do you believe, even though, look, uh, you know, this marriage between Belichick, Brady, Kraft, um, to last for two decades in any sport, owner, coach, player, is beyond remarkable. It's it's totally absurd. Um, and to win six titles, not just concentrated in one time, but basically being separated by seventeen years. And but but and and I've always thought. And, and again, this is sort of the optimist in me. People should be glad for the greatness and for the experience of the greatness rather than to try to dissect why 
Bill Belichick, who is the ultimate, ultimate, I just want to know what you can do for me now. I'm not sentimental. His whole career is that. So in not wanting to pay Tom Brady a huge amount of money at age 43 is not a particular surprise to me. But if, as you sit here now, what is your belief on why it all ended? Uh, I think it's, I will answer it this way. One day I was interviewing Robert Kraft at his apartment in New York City that overlooks Central Park. This was actually the first, I've been there more than once, but this was my first time going there. So I was taking in sort of the- It's an incredible sight. I've been, I've been in yeah. there. Yeah. Well, then what I'm going to describe to you, you have seen, <laughs> but I'm going to just tell you that to answer this question, this moment had a profound impact on me. When you first enter that apartment and look straight toward the windows that overlook the park, between the two big windows, there are hanging on the wall a couple of pictures of the Beatles. And they're, yeah, they're, nice. they're from the Beatles' first trip to America when they played on the Ed Sullivan Show. And the pictures are signed by, the, by all four Beatles. And so I started asking Robert some questions about those pictures and we started talking about the Beatles, particularly Lennon and McCartney and how much he loved the Beatles. And I, I started thinking at the time, this is when there was all the questions about whether Tom was going to come back and, you know, the relationship between him and Belichick. And it, it really hit me that for 20 years, but really the last 10 years in particular, Robert Kraft has had two of the Beatles on his payroll. He's had John and Paul. And those guys lasted together for less than a decade. They were the greatest rock band in the history, in history, but they couldn't stay together for not even 10 years. And then you got Bill and Tom, who for the last 20 years have been the two biggest stars, arguably in sports, in, in team sports. And yet they've shared the same stage that entire time. To me, that is a monumental achievement by the owner. And that's the part that gets lost in this story. It's easy to see Bill's contribution to the dynasty because he wears a headset. He's on the sideline. It's easy to see Tom's contribution because he wears a helmet and he's got the ball in his hands all the time. The owner is invisible. It, he's invisible at games. You don't see what his role is in the dynamic this triangle with the owner, excuse me, with the coach and the quarterback. And I think over the last 10 years, the achievement of keeping them on the same sideline. And then when you compare that to Montana, Walsh, and DeBartlow, Rooney, Noel, and Bradshaw, and we don't even have to talk about Jerry Jones and Jimmy Johnson and Troy Aikman, because that only lasted like four or five years. When you start putting that in perspective, that's what's so incredibly unusual here about New England. It's about relationships. It's about Kraft's relationship with Belichick, which is to me the best, most efficient owner-coach relationship in sports. And then the very familial relationship, very different, but familial relationship between owner and quarterback, that's father-son. It's it's arms around each other, kisses on the cheek, expressions of I love you on a normal basis, literally living down the street from each other. It's that kind of, 
Those two relationships, the owner and the coach, the owner and the quarterback, that's what's kept it together. Rupert Murdoch said something to me. I interviewed Rupert for the book. I interviewed a lot of people like Rupert Murdoch, not because I wanted to quote them in the book. I don't think Rupert's even in the book. But his interview was so important in terms of educating me about important things. And this in this story applies. He brought this up and he said, when you look at the Kraft-Belichick relationship and the role of the owner, he said, the best thing you need to know about Robert Kraft is if he had gone into politics, he probably would have gone down in American history as our greatest diplomat ever, except he's used those skills to oversee a football team. That's the difference. It's really good. That's that's really, really interesting. We're going to end with this. Um, so I want to leave, um, I'd like to leave the readers wanting some more, but I do want you to, to maybe give people a little bit of preview of about how you ended this book. Um, you told me that during the course of writing this book, um, the end of this book, while you were writing it, uh, you basically started crying. And, uh, you know, I'm reminded of what Mark Twain said when somebody said, man, it, it must be so great to be a writer. What's, what's the greatest thing about being a writer? And he said, the greatest thing about being a writer is having written. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's yeah. being finished. But, yes. but as you finish this, this book, uh, you wrote something very emotional. Give us a little preview of how you decided to finish this book and why. As I said earlier, Peter, I never had figured out how I was going to end the book until the end. And so it's the COVID outbreak had just started in the U.S. It's March. Uh, I'm trying to figure out the ending. And Tom Brady's contract in New England is expiring. And uh, to go back to the Beatles, I was really thinking about it's time. It's, it's time for these two stars to no longer share the same stage. This, this dynasty, the Belichick-Brady-Kraft dynasty, has run its course. It's at the end of the road. And um, so when, when Tom opted out and decided to basically make himself available to the market, uh, I knew that that was going to be the ending. And so I sat in my office and I wanted the ending to be um, emotional, powerful, personal, the way that kind of the whole book is, but this is a crescendo moment. And so uh, I decided to close with the basically Tom's departure. And the way it happens uh, in the midst of COVID, where you have a quarterback and an owner who, who can't embrace, who can't uh, touch each other, who can't get within six feet of each other, and uh, yet they're in the same room. They're in Robert Kraft's house. Um, I, I knew that that would give... Everybody who reads the book would be able to relate to the social distancing restrictions, the fear, yeah. the, de the desire to want to hug a person you love. And, and what I said to you, Peter, about I did cry when I wrote it because, first of all, uh, without giving too much away, both of them are crying in this moment. And um, as I wrote it, 
I was too, because I made the mistake of playing Abbey Road uh, on my uh, computer while I was writing because I was trying to get in the mood. And I was making a comparison between the end of the Beatles and the end of the Patriots. Um, and so I was playing that music because Abbey Road was really the last thing they recorded together um, at the pinnacle. And I compared that to the Super Bowl victory over the, Fal uh, over the uh, Rams a year earlier. And when they walked off the stage with the hardware, that was really like the Beatles leaving the Abbey Road studio for the last time and walking across the street, that famous shot. So with the music playing and the dialogue that I had between these men, and there's a moment where Belichick enters the scene at the very end. To me, it was all so, um, it, it was overwhelming to me. And so as I wrote the final lines, almost like scripted, the music hit the last song on the record, which is the end. And, yeah. I, and I was sitting there and I found myself getting very emotional and partly overcome by what I'd just written, but also overcome by the myself being at the end. Like, I realized this is the end of it for me, too. Like, I've just traveled this journey, this 25-year odyssey, and it took everything out of me to write this, Peter. I was mentally exhausted, physically exhausted. When did you, when did you actually finish that? Uh, when, when, when was that, that you wrote that? I wrote that May? Uh, probably four to five weeks after Tom actually left. Yeah. So, so in late April, let's say. Yes. Yeah. And okay. uh, I remember it was a Saturday morning and I, I was alone. You know this, but when you write a book like this, I basically was alone for two years. I mean, when I was around the team, I'm not alone. But when I'm writing and thinking, it's it's people don't appreciate how alone writers are. And I was alone in this office for days, weeks, months. Uh through winter, you know, and so getting to the end of that, I felt like it's one of the reasons that helped me relate in a way to these guys. Cause in my mind, Bill Belichick and, and Tom Brady and Robert Kraft are also alone. They, they live in a, in a world that forces them to, to be alone. A lot of times they make lonely decisions. They they have to stand up for stuff with their backs against the wall a lot of time when they got no one around them. Uh, a quarterback is a lonely job. A head coach is a lonely job, and so is an owner. And so my appreciation for what they go through and uh, in their jobs was only elevated through what I was experiencing trying to write the story. His name is Jeff Benedict. He's written a book. Uh, the ultimate book about the Patriots dynasty. It's called The Dynasty. He's written it for uh, for Simon & Schuster's Avid Reader Press imprint. Jeff, listen, thank you so much for taking the time. It was very educational, and uh, I really, really enjoyed the book. Thanks so much for writing it. It's a great contribution to football history. Well, coming from you, that means the world. Thank you, Peter. My thanks to Jeff Benedict, a really, really enlightening conversation about his book and about the New England Patriots. Before we get out, let's talk for a second about what you can see and what you can hear for free right now at Peacock, NBC's new streaming service. There's an NBC sports area of Peacock that I think you'll really enjoy. 12 hours every weekday 
of all sports programming. 7 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time, Pro Football Talk uh, with Mike Florio and mostly with Chris Sims, although you'll see me there every Friday with Mike Florio from 7 to 9 in the morning Eastern. Then from 9 to 12 Eastern, you've got Dan Patrick, 12 to 3, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, The Rich Eisen Show. And then a new entry in the NBC Sports lineup on Peacock. Brothers from another, Michael Smith, Michael Holly, both really bright guys, good friends of mine. You'll really enjoy their intelligent sports talk. And the day ends with PFTPM, uh, with Mike Florio's sort of second show of the day. You'll enjoy it so much about what happened that day Great interviews, great conversations, uh, so much from the day in football. That's the 12-hour lineup every day on Peacock with NBC Sports. So, happy we made it through week one of the NFL season. Look forward to a lot more of these during the course of the season, and I really appreciate you listening. Have a great week, everybody. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.